0: Good morning. As Jerry said, my wife did give birth to twins. Uh, it was actually on Sunday, uh, two hours after I was done preaching at Emmanuel Presbyterian in Gilbert. And that is quite the uh, story. Uh, a lot of rushing and all that. It was very unexpected. It was a few weeks before her schedule C-section, so we were not planning. It, but the Lord was. The lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is of the Lord, right? Uh, well, we don't have the twins here with us, Joshua and Caleb. Um, they are in the NICU, so because they were born earlier than we had expected, they're going to be spending some more time in the NICU, probably for another couple weeks. And if we're back here again, then we shall... Present them to you and you will see these beautiful little boys in the flesh. Alright, well let's, uh, read Psalm 56. Psalm 56. Hear now the word of the Lord. To the choir master, according to the dove on far off terebinths, a miktum of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape. In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back. In the day when I call, this I know that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize that apart from your Spirit's work in our lives uh, through your Scripture, these would be dead words to us. But we are so thankful, Lord, that for, for us, that by your Spirit, you have applied these words to our hearts, that we can say that we would walk before God in the light of life, that we can praise you for your Word We're so thankful, Lord, for your word, and we we know that it is the only source of uh, eternal life. And so we are so thankful that you have given us your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would be glorified through the preaching of the word, and that through this psalm we would be encouraged to seek your face. In Jesus' name, amen. Juliana's life was full of trials, torments, immense suffering. She was uh, given up for adoption when she was a baby. Uh, She was the result of a drunken night with a stranger, and neither biological parent wanted to remember the night, and they thought it better to get rid of the evidence and uh, gave her up for adoption. And she, she never did end up meeting her biological parents And sadly, her adoptive parents weren't any better. Her father, adoptive father abused her in every way imaginable. And her mom just, adoptive mom just pretended everything was okay. Thought that if she just ignored it, the problems would go away. And they didn't. And from the abuse, Juliana always walked a little funny. When Juliana grew up and went to school, she was an outcast. She was rejected by her peers. She dressed in all black. She had some scars on her wrists and thighs from cutting. And she was, to say at least, not very sociable. And for several years, Juliana thought it best if she just, maybe just end her life, just get it over with. But she could never pluck up enough courage, uh, she thought. And so she says, said, I guess I'll just live this life alone, unloved, until my time has come, a life of misery. And Juliana's story is a hard story, a very sad story, Uh, but her story isn't unique, Uh, perhaps in the details it is, but she faces trials, we face trials of various kinds. Yeah it did seem it does seem like a harsher providence lay upon her life but we all face trials of various kinds we all face oppression and great suffering and if you haven't then you haven't lived long enough you will and david he wasn't immune to trials either his life was full of tribulation enormous torment, as we see in this psalm. And as we examine Psalm 56, we're going to look at David's plight, his affliction, his suffering, his tribulation. We'll look at his plea, what he does, uh, how he responds to his plight, and then his plan, how he gets out from under his affliction of sorts, or how he views his plight through faith. As we begin this psalm, this psalm is situated in a particular point in history in David's life. As we see just above verse 1, it says, When the Philistines seized him in Gath. Now we see this story in 1 Samuel chapter 21, and I'll just kind of summarize it for you. But that's the the who, the what, the where, the when. And then Psalm 56 is a window into David's soul as he reflects on that, uh, well, trying time. This was a time when Saul, King Saul, was, was hot on David's heels. David ran away from the kingdom because he had to run away for his life. And he uh, fled, didn't have anybody really with him. And Saul tried to, of course, on many occasions, destroy David, the successor to the throne. And David fled to Gath. This was uh, where the Philistines are from. This is where uh, Goliath was from. And he fled to uh, the king Achish. Well, as he gets there, naturally, the Philistines were surprised and did not give him a warm welcome. They did not receive him well. And so David had to play the insane card and allowed his saliva to remain on his face. And he was drawing all these random marks on doors and walls. And so he wasn't killed. Um, but this was a very trying time. This was not his, this was not his home. And he ended up staying there for, uh, About a year and a half, actually. And things did actually get a little better. But at this time, it was it was awful. And David, through this psalm, is reflecting on that account and is feeling the weight of the attacks of his enemies from within and from without. It doesn't matter wherever he turns. He is met with people who hate him, who oppress him, who reject him. And And we see this affliction, this plight in several verses. Verse 1, he says, man tramples on me. Whether it is Saul or a Philistine, David feels trampled underfoot by his enemies. He feels overtaken by, well, Saul and by these Philistines who hate him so vehemently. Like a man who is in a crowd and he trips and falls forward and falls on the ground this inattentive and careless crowd runs him aground it's that's how david is feeling he's he feels like he's trampled underfoot by his oppressors and he goes on in verse one he says all day long an attacker oppresses me sadly this oppression doesn't let up there's no reprieve there's no modicum of rest for David. As far as David's enemies are concerned, the only kind of relief David is going to get will be his death. Many, Verse 2, Many attack me proudly. This attack is an arrogant one, one from a high position of condescension. As they look down upon David and, and they're boasting in their taunts on David and their assailments and their oppression, they love to mock David. And they love to mock David's God as weak, ineffectual, uncaring. Verse 5 goes on, all day long they injure my cause. These enemies take David's words and they twist them to mean something he never intended them to mean. Perhaps you know what that's like when somebody takes one of your words or a phrase and takes it out of context or just focuses on one thing and and uses it to support their cause against your cause. And Peter says that false teachers do this to Paul's writings and the other scriptures. And they do this to their own destruction, to their own ruin. This is what these people were doing to David. He says, verse five again, he says, their thoughts are against me. David's tormentors imagine and conjure up evil schemes against David. They arise in the morning thinking, what can we do to hurt this guy? How can we harm him? How can we attack his soul? How can we discourage his spirit? How can we end his life? Verse 6, they stir up strife, they lurk, they waited for my life. Not only do they think evil, they lie in wait to carry out these malicious plots. Just watching and waiting for a moment of vulnerability, a moment of weakness of David. They're just nipping at his heels. That's quite the oppression, wouldn't you say? That's quite the opposition. Can you imagine David's pain here? He says in these several verses, this is how awful things are. Now, in God's providence, probably most of us haven't, ex- haven't experienced such hot hatred and opposition by friends and family and, and enemies. But again, we do face, there are many sources of, of, of trial, there's a lot of evil against us, there's the, the world, there's the devil, there's our own sin. But what do we do? When our enemies trample us. When our sin, which so easily entangles us, oppresses us, seeks to weigh us down. When the world insults us and calls us fools for trusting in Christ. What do we do when the devil gives it all he's got to lay waste to our souls? Well, God shows us the way through this inspired psalm and how to address these trials. David pleads with God. He feeds himself with with Scripture. He reminds himself of who God is and who David is. He trusts in God, he worships God, and he walks in obedience. So we see the very beginning in his time of great trouble, David pleads with the Lord. He says, Be gracious to me, O God. You notice the urgency here. Be gracious to me. He says, Lord, do you, do you see the bloodthirsty wrath of my enemies that are trampling me, seeking to put me under their feet? Do you see this, Lord? Deliver me. Be gracious to me. Now, please. These are the very first words from David's lips. A cry for grace. A cry to the Lord to be gracious to him. You can see that this is very present in David's mind. This is the first course of action David takes. And it should be our for- first course of action as well. When we are beset by the world's attacks, we are to cry out to God. Cry out for Grace. In our master bedroom, there is this plaque. And it says, When life is too hard to stand, kneel. And that if it sounds cheesy, it's because it is cheesy. <laughs> Probably something from Hobby Lobby or, or some store like that. But sometimes cheesy things are true. And I think in this case as well, it's just a reminder when we face difficult times... We need to be in prayer. We need to cry out to our God for grace. Lord, be gracious to us. What is your immediate reaction when you face trials of various kinds? When your boss withholds justice from you. When your family member speaks evil, hurt thing, hurtful things, false things to you or about you. When your wayward child never responds positively to the gracious advances of the gospel. When your loved one has died or is suffering a chronic sickness, what do you do when you face trials of various kinds? Do you say, Lord, I can't do this. I can't handle this on my own. I need you. Lord, be gracious to me. Because my enemies seem to overpower me. Even my friends and family are against me. I need you to be gracious to me. Because too often, when life gets harder, people seem to run away from God, thinking that that's a sign of God's absence. They run away from God. They run away from the church, the very institution God has established under the headship of Jesus Christ for comfort, for encouragement, for sound teaching. They run away from that. They don't run into the arms of God, who is their fortress, who is their refuge. They don't fall upon the grace of God. But David is showing us that's exactly what we need to be doing. We need to cry out to God. Be gracious to me. And crying out to God shows our weakness. shows our vulnerability. It shows our great need for our Heavenly Father to hear us. And it is a call to action. It's, Lord, do you hear? Do you see my trial? Do you see what's going on? I need you to act on my behalf. I can't handle this. Lord, be gracious to me. David cries out for grace. Then verse 7, he, he cries out for justice. He says, for their crime, will they escape? Rhetorical question. No, they will not. He says, in wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. Cast them down in your wrath, in your holy hatred for sin, for wickedness, for all of these evils that they are doing against me, your servant Lord. Cast them down. Show your justice. May your righteousness be vindicated here on earth. These are strong words, no doubt about it. David recognizes that God is the judge of all the earth, and as judge, he will do right. Notice that David doesn't try to take justice into his own hands here. He doesn't try to fend them off. He doesn't really have any resources anyways. So it would be a losing battle. He doesn't try to solve his own predicament, his own trial by himself, using his own view of what justice would look like in this situation. He pleads with the just judge. And he submits himself to the Lord's justice. For the Lord to dole out justice as he sees fit, not as David sees fit. When you cry out to God for justice, do you then try to mete out the justice according to your own desires? What you think justice would look like in your situation, which would probably just be your own selfish desires. Or do you let the Lord of vengeance avenge you in His time, in His way? Do you hold on to that passage of Scripture that says, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And do you give it to God? This is not a life of passivity or inactivity. This is not a let go and let God kind of approach. We are doing something here. When we cry out for grace and justice, we are praying. We are pleading with the Lord. We are calling upon our gracious and righteous God to act. We're asking Him to be on our side. We are doing something effectual. The prayer of the righteous man avails much. And we are submitting ourselves to God's will, to his plan, to his timing, to his sovereign and good ways, which are not our ways. We're doing something powerful. Prayer is God's way, God's means for us to show dependence on him, to seek his face, and to call him to act. And that's what David does. That's what we need to be doing. Not only does David plead with the Lord, but he goes on and he feeds himself with sound teaching, with the, with the truth of Scripture, of who God is. He reminds himself, first of all, that God is a trustworthy God. David's God, your God, is a trustworthy God. Verse 4, he says, "...in God whose word I praise, in God I trust." I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? You look at all of human history and you will not find God to have failed at any point. God is always trustworthy. He's always faithful. He calls us to trust in Him because He alone is trustworthy. Though every man be a liar, God will be truthful. Even when we are faithless, God remains faithful. Notice the emphasis here. In verses 3 and 4, he says the same thing in just a matter of a few words here. He says, I put my trust in you. And then in verse 4, in God I trust. He is professing his trust. He is reminding himself in whom he puts his trust. There is no one strong enough. There is no one worthy enough to be trusted but our God, ultimately. Ultimately. And our God is worthy of all our trust. Not just some of those areas where we think we can't control. God, I got these parts, and then you can have those parts because those are out of my control. All areas. Because ultimately, you can't control anything. Right? If you could, I I doubt you'd be in a hospital, or I doubt you would have a cold can't control anything really and if god is not worthy of our trust then who you me well maybe we just came together and collectively added all of our strength and all of our character and then we could be trustworthy right no perish the thought only god alone is worthy of all of our trust just look at your life and and see His faithfulness in your life. How He has worked mightily and consistently in your life. One of the things that I I love about hearing prayer requests is that very often, just a couple few weeks later, those prayer requests turn into thanksgiving. Just think about this year and how God has been faithful to you individually, to you as... Uh, A married couple to you as a church? To you as a mom or a dad? As a child? See how He has been faithful day in and day out. You look at Scripture and you see His faithfulness to His covenant and to His people. All the way back in Genesis 3 when He promised a seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. How He has been faithful to Noah, then Abraham, then Moses, then David. And the new covenant, God has been faithful to his covenant. He has never failed at any point. Our God is trustworthy God. And because our God is trustworthy, David says that we can put our trust in him. But notice that David doesn't deny his fear. He says, when I am afraid. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't pretend it's not there like a good Buddhist or some kind of stoic and If I just push it away, it'll go away. He doesn't deny it. He acknowledges his fear. It's natural for us weak men and women to be anxious for a variety of things, to to be afraid. Again, ultimately, we can't control our own lives. Evil does threaten to undo us. There are real concerns out there. Evil is real. And the enemy would like nothing more than to destroy us or to make our lives on earth a living hell. So there are so many reasons to be afraid from an earthly perspective. But David is essentially saying, when I am afraid, I won't be afraid. When I experience fear, I won't have any reason ultimately to be afraid. Why? How is this the case? Because he looks to his Redeemer he doesn't look inward. He doesn't even look outward. He looks upward to the heavens, to his Redeemer. He doesn't find strength in himself. He finds strength in his almighty God. He doesn't feed his fear. He doesn't just roll in his mind over and over and over again without doing anything about it, just all the the anxiety or the stressful circumstance he doesn't do that he doesn't stare at his problems but he trusts in his god he pleads he trusts in his god and that's why we can say what can flesh do to me or later on in verse 11 he says what can man do to me now if you're reading this psalm as he is writing it so to speak you might say um David, uh, he is, you're, man's doing a lot of stuff to you. You're, you're complaining for a reason, aren't you? Be gracious to me, O God. Man tramples on me all day long. An attacker oppresses you, David. Your enemies trample on you all day long. They attack you proudly. They injure your cause. All their thoughts are against you for evil, David. They stir up strife. They wait for your life. Um, David, they're doing a lot to you. That's why you're complaining, or that's why you're expressing your heart. They could kill you, David. Well, from an earthly perspective, sure, I guess they could. But David knows that this trial is light and momentary affliction, as Paul would say. And David is not stuck on the earthly perspective of how things look at this point. And he knows that his God is so much more powerful, so much stronger than these enemies on earth. What can flesh do to me when I have God, the omnipotent creator of the universe who is on my side? What can flesh do to me? What can man do to me? Ultimately, nothing. And anyways, if I did die, I'm going to be with God. This is David's worst life now. This right now is our worst life. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that great to know? Osteen should have written the book, Your Worst Life Now to Believers, and Your Best Life Now to to Unbelievers. This is the worst it'll get, and it doesn't... Even compare to the weight of glory that is coming our way when Christ returns or when God takes us home. Our God is a trustworthy God. He's also a caring God. David reminds himself of, of God's tenderness, of his affection. Verse eight, you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? This term tossings can also be translated wanderings, which works really well in this, in this psalm given David's, at this point, aimlessness, his homelessness, where he has run away from Saul and is in enemy territory in a foreign land. But the Lord has kept count of David's unrest, of his fear, of his nightly tossing and turning, of his sleeplessness. And he has collected all the tears that David has shed, all those that, that trickle down from his face or that burst forth from his face as he has urgently pled with the Lord for grace and justice as he has cried out to his God. And David is assured in this Psalm that his whole past, his concerns, his trials, his struggles, his enemy, the attacks of his enemies, his unrest, all of these are known by His God. That God knows and that God cares. Likewise, the Lord is not oblivious to your trials. He's not hard-hearted to your cries for grace, for justice, for mercy, for wisdom, for strength, for deliverance. He knows and He cares. And He is working all things out for His name's sake and for your good. The Lord hasn't forgotten our exile wanderings, our living in a strange land as we await a heavenly city. The Lord knows it all and He cares. David reminds himself, thirdly here, that God is on his side. He assures himself that God is on his side. Verse 9 says, then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. When I call upon my God, I know that my enemies will turn back. They will run away in shame and fear and they will they will try to hide away from God. But they will not find such hiding place because my God sees all and He has come to vindicate my cause. And He has come to administer justice on the earth. And to judge those who are against Him. Those who do not bow the knee to God. And so he says, This I know. Yes, he has expressed his fear. He expressed his emotions of how things are going. How things don't look good at all. But he goes back to what he knows. Lord, this I know. I know that I know that I know. What do I know? That God is for me my god is on my side he is not against me he is for me what a comfort it is to know that our god is on our side that he cares for us that he is for us how he has chosen us how he has in love predestined us to be his sons and daughters how he has given us new spiritual life What a comfort it is to know that God is on your side. How He has adopted us as as sons and daughters. Made us from children of the devil, children of wrath, sons of disobedience to to daughters of God, to, to sons of God. How He has forgiven us. How He has redeemed us from every transgression. What a comfort it is to know that God is on our side, that God is for us, that He has justified us, that He has declared us righteous in His sight. Innocent, and not just innocent, but actually righteous. Not just clean, but favorably clean. Having a righteousness that is not our own. How God has sanctified us and is sanctifying us right now. How He has lavished wisdom upon us. Insight. What a comfort it is to know that our God is on our side. That our God is for us. That He has sealed us with the Holy Spirit. That He has made us one in Christ. And one with one another. That He has prepared good works for us. From before the foundation of the world that we would walk in them. What a comfort it is to know that our God is for us, that our God is on our side. And He has given us His Word. He has given us each other. And most importantly, He has given us Himself. Oh, what a comfort it is to know that our God is for us, that our God is on our side. And the psalmist in chapter 30, verse 5 says, God's favor is for a lifetime. It never lets go. His favor never lets up and never leaves. It always pursues us. His steadfast love, His mercy, always pursues us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No more condemnation. Just grace. Just God's loving hand. And yeah, that grace looks different at times, looks like discipline, which is a blessing. But, but all of what we get from our God, if we are in Christ, is His for usness He is on our side. And for God to be for you is the best news that anyone could receive. The worst news is that God would be against you. We know that God is an all-consuming fire. And it is a fearful thing to fall on the hands of the living God as these enemies of David have found out. Oh, but to be in the loving, gracious hands of our God, that's the sweetest thing. It's the best news anyone can hear. David feeds himself with the scripture of, of who God is. And then he worships God. Knowing what God has done for us, how can we not, along with David, respond in worship? Verse 10, "...in God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise." David praises God for His powerful, true, faithful Word, this Word that revives the soul, this Word that will never fade away or pass away, this Word that will never return unto God void, but will always accomplish the purpose for which God has sent it. Do you worship God? Do you praise Him for His Word, for His rock-solid promises that He has given to you as a people? When you are in the heat of a trial is your first reaction to worship God for his word think back on David's life when he uh, had an adult committed adultery with Bathsheba and then murdered Uriah and how there was this baby that was going to be born as a result of the union between himself and Bathsheba and how David how David was told by the Lord that the Lord was going to afflict the child and the child would was going to die. And you might remember that David was pleading with the Lord over and over and over again, for who who knows if the Lord will spare David of this, of this trial. But in the Lord's good providence, he, he didn't spare the child. And this is the lowest point in David's life breaking all the, all the Ten Commandments, and then losing your son. What a trial. And what does David do? He gets up, he cleans himself, he washes, he eats, and he worships. He could only have done that by the grace of God. Do you worship God in the heat of a trial, or do you run away? Do you accept that this trial is every good and perfect gift that comes from above? That God is using it to perfect you. That is God, and God is using it to work in your life, to conform you more into the image of His Son, His blessed Son, your Savior. So David worships and then he walks in obedience. Deliverance leads to worship Which leads to obedience, verses 12 and 13. I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling. That I may walk before God in the light of life. David is so sure that his life will be spared. He can speak of it as already accomplished. His deliverance is as good as done. Even though right now, as David is writing this psalm, his feet are not safe from his enemies, hence the psalm, God's justice and care for David are as good as sure because God is faithful to his people. And so this faithfulness, this knowledge that he will be delivered, leads David to worship. I will perform my vows to you. I will render my thank offerings to you. And I will walk before God in the light of life. I will walk in obedience and faith. Likewise, we have been delivered from the domain of darkness. We have been delivered from the wrath of God. We have been delivered from our sin. We have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness. And we have been brought into the marvelous light of the kingdom of the Son of God. And so now we walk before our God who is our light who is our life. By God's grace, Juliana met someone who shared the gospel with her. She ended up going to college her freshman year. She was in the cafeteria. She got her lunch and sat down alone at a table. And then another fellow freshman, she saw Juliana at the table and asked if she could sit next to her, and Juliana reluctantly agreed, and they started a conversation, which started a a friendship, started a relationship. And this woman shared the gospel with Juliana, and over time, Juliana was able to share her past, her struggles, her trials, and this faithful woman was able to uh, lead this person to, to Christ, and was able to help her to see all of these trials in in light of uh, the gospel, in light of what God was doing in her life to, to bring her to himself, to save her from her greatest trial, which would be her separation from God. And by God's grace, she trusted in the Lord and is now viewing uh, her sufferings in the light of life, light of God. And like Juliana, we can all have hope in our God as our salvation because he has promised, he has promised us that though man trample us, the offspring of the woman, the Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, has trampled underfoot evil. He has conquered evil. He has conquered death. And though we shed many tears of sorrow and many more to come, because of Christ's victory in death, because of His resurrection, and because what He's doing right now at the right hand of the Father, He will come back, and when He does, He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Every tear that we shed, every tear that is in God's bottle, that is written in God's book, He'll wipe it away. Death shall be no more. Neither will there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain for the old things have passed away and the new have come. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for this passage of Scripture. What what an encouraging text of Scripture that we can come to You, Lord, in prayer, plead with You, cry out to You for grace, for justice, knowing that You love us, that You are a trustworthy God, a caring God, that You are faithful to us, that You are on our side. Lord, thank you for what you have done for us in Christ, Were it not for what you have done for us in Christ. We could not say that our God is for us. We could only say that God is against us. And so, great triune God, we are so thankful for what you have done in redeeming us. And we ask, Lord, that, that you would use this passage of Scripture to fill our hearts with praise and trust in you, our great God.